Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to this final Sunday morning study of 2019. So glad that you could be here with us today. If you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 14 this morning. Romans chapter 14, as we consider together, working towards unity. And beginning in verse 1, it says, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you? to judge another's servant. To his own master, he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Will you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done this past year. Lord, we can look back and be reminded of your past faithfulness. We're still here, Lord, and we're just so grateful. And Lord, we also have an anticipation, Lord, and an expectant hope of what you will do in the coming year. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in Romans chapter 14, the Apostle Paul addresses an area that was a consistent concern, and even at times, a problem within the churches that he planted. That is the problem of division and the challenge of maintaining unity. On the day of Pentecost, when the church expanded in Jerusalem, the majority of its members were Jewish. On the day the church started, 3,000 people were added to the church. And the majority of its members were Jewish individuals. Thus, their perspective, their convictions were similar. They had grown up in a comparable cultural and religious environment. They understood one another. They came from the same way of life. But as the church continued to grow, it took a while before the gospel reached the Gentiles. But in time, the Gentiles also heard the good news and accepted Jesus as their savior. Paul then became the apostle to the Gentiles, and he began planting churches that were now integrated, both with Jews and Gentiles. There were those who had come out of ritualistic Judaism, as well as those who had been delivered from idolatrous paganism. They were all under the same roof. And within the blended congregation, there were obvious differences and even disagreements. In addition to that, there were Jewish believers who felt that it was their responsibility 
to make their way into the newly founded, predominantly Gentile churches and inform them that in order to be truly saved, they needed to keep the law of Moses, they needed to observe the dietary laws, and all of the Gentile men must be circumcised. And if they didn't do that, well, then they weren't truly saved. The Jews wanted the Gentiles to become Jews. At that point, it became such a divisive issue that Paul and Barnabas found it necessary to travel to the church in Jerusalem and straighten out these misunderstandings. And so there in Acts chapter 15, they met with the apostles in what is called the Jerusalem Council. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, the apostles decided that the demands that were being placed upon the Gentiles by the Jews should be dismissed. But at the same time, they gave the Gentile believers guidelines that would help maintain unity amongst their Jewish brethren. Now, one of the areas that became a, a point of contention had to do with one's liberty. That is, what believers were free to do and what they were not free to do. Convictions on the part of some were very narrow, while convictions on the part of others were rather wide. These differences of personal conviction caused factions, infighting, disagreements, and at times, division. And the differences in the churches then revolved around the diet that one had and the religious days that one observed. Now to us, that may seem petty, insignificant, or irrelevant, but it became a serious problem. And the truth is that in the church today, we have equivalent issues that have the potential to cause division. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Homeschool versus public school. <gasps> God forbid. These are things that people divide over in the church iPhone versus Android. I mean, there's just, just issues. Should a Christian drink wine? Should they not drink wine? Should a believer listen to secular music or strictly Christian music? Should a church have instruments or no instruments? And these are things that are a matter of opinion. They're not necessarily mapped out. In scripture, in order to solve the problem of potential division, what Paul does is he appeals to the stronger and more mature believers in the congregation, and he encourages them how they are to respond. And as we read through Paul's instructions, it's important to remember that what we're about to consider is in light of scriptural limitation. Meaning, Paul wasn't dealing here with issues that were sinful or biblical. Rather, he is confronting those areas that are not completely mapped out in scripture. These are differences that were based upon one's personal conviction, one's upbringing, one's culture, one's background. 
They were not dealing with salvation, but rather Paul refers to them as doubtful things. They were matters of opinion and opinions vary. How do we as a church avoid division over doubtful things? How do we stay united in the midst of differing opinions or personal preferences? First of all, it begins with a mutual acceptance of one another. It says here in verses one and two, receive, mark that word, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. The gospel of the new covenant in Jesus Christ did not include ceremonial or dietary restrictions. Some Gentile believers, like some Jews, were troubled by the eating of certain foods, but for different reasons. Because of the idolatry and immorality related to their former religious practices, they could not bring themselves to eat meat or any other food that had been used as an offering to a pagan deity. You see, what would happen is the Gentiles, they could go to these markets where the meat that had been offered to idols would be sold for a much cheaper price. You could get a really good deal at this particular market. It had been offered to idols, but they were believers. They didn't care about idols. Idols weren't anything to them. It was all about, well, it was about the good deal on meat. So if you invited a Jew over to your house and you cooked it and he'd ask you, where'd you get it from? He said, I got it at the market. Which market? The idol market? Yes, I got it there. I can't eat that. It's been offered to idols. So there was this division between them at the church barbecue. Here, here's what Paul said. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, listen to what he said. He said, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there's no other God but one. But food, he said, it doesn't commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Paul agreed. There's not a big deal. These, this meat, it's a good deal. It's okay. It's just meat. That idol is just a piece of stone or metal. It doesn't matter. However, he said, if your brother or your sister comes over to your home and they stumble because of that, then you need to be sensitive to that. Avoiding division over doubtful things begins with having a mutual acceptance and receiving one another. Folks, listen, it's one thing to have discussions about differences of opinions, but it's not worth getting into debates that lead to division over trivial things. Paul said, receive them, welcome them, embrace them. For those Jews and Gentiles, they needed to accept one another in spite of their cultural differences and personal preferences. They needed to see from the other person's perspective. That's really important. Sometimes what happens is we are not spiritually mature enough to do that. We don't even want to dialogue about it. We don't even want to discuss it. I'm, this is what we're doing. Okay, no problem. I, I can see your point. That's wonderful. But we ought to be able to dialogue about our differences of opinion. 
there are some characteristics that are found within the weaker brother or sister. First of all, the weaker brother or sister often assumes that they are stronger. They can judge by appearance. They can become upset if someone does something with which they disagree and conclude that their motives are wrong. They're often extremely opinionated and dogmatic about doubtful things. The weaker brother or sister can sometimes even be a burden within the congregation because everywhere they go, there's controversy and a lack of humility and a willingness, as I said, to see it perhaps from a different perspective than their own. Now, that's not to say that they're not going to mature in time, but in the meantime, how do we respond? Paul says, don't get into a debate with them over doubtful things. Instead, just receive them. The second encouragement he gives is not only don't debate with them, but don't despise them. That's usually what follows. He says in verse three, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Here we see a progression that can lead to division. If you don't receive the other person, you can very easily end up despising the other person. And the word despise means to throw out as nothing and to treat with contempt, to look at them sideways. The temptation can occur when you have a brother or sister in Christ who's different than you. And the reason that we're not to despise them, regardless of what side of the doubtful conversation you're on, is God doesn't despise them. So if he doesn't despise them, what am I doing? Despising them. He receives them. And God understands that all of us are growing, that we're all maturing. And he is extremely patient with our development. And thus, we should be patient with the development of our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Yet this downward spiral continues. It moves from debating to despising, to judging. Paul exhorts the church here in verse three, let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. And who are you, he asks the question, to judge another servant. To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand. God is able to make him stand. The word for judge here that Paul uses has no positive element attached to it. It can only be negative and cruel. This is the kind of judging that presumes to appraise the value, the value of another person based on flawed human standards. That is the kind of judging that there is no place for in the body of Christ. And there is a temptation to judge a person who has a more narrow view than you do or a wider view than you do. Paul says, it's not our place to judge. The position of a judge has been reserved for one individual, and that is Jesus. He's the judge. He knows the whole story. And if that person is a believer, they're the Lord's servant. They're not my servant. They're the Lord's servant. When it comes to judging, or taking the place of a judge in this context. We're not omniscient. 
We don't know everything. Therefore, our judgment doesn't have all the facts. You ever made a judgment call and you didn't have all the information and then felt bad after you made that call when you found out more information that you didn't know? You thought, man, I, I jumped to conclusions pretty quickly without really knowing the whole backstory on the situation. I've done that myself more times than I'd like to admit to you. Also, we're not always objective. And so our judgment can be tainted by self-interest. We're not perfect. And thus our judgment can be hypocritical. It's easy for us to spot our sin in somebody else's life. My goodness. Wow, they really struggle. I can see it. How can you see it? Probably because you struggle with the same thing even more so. We're not God, so our judgment has no real jurisdiction like God does. Folks, there are those in this congregation that have a very strong conviction that is more narrow than yours. And you'll find others whose convictions are much broader than yours. And the struggle is not to despise them, not to debate with them, not to judge them. Now, you may not have a problem with someone who has a more narrow viewpoint than you. You might even respect it. I respect them. Man, the way they raise their kid, the things they do, I, I respect that. Just don't put that conviction on me. But I respect you. On the other hand, we can go swing the opposite way. We might find someone whose conviction is more broad than ours, and we want to put our conviction on them. It's important for us to remember this fact. We're all in process. <laughs> We're all at different levels of maturity and our growth in our walk with the Lord, that we are all God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. If you're a Christian here today, you're the Lord's servant. And that Christian brother or that Christian sister that doesn't share your conviction, they belong to Jesus. Jesus is their master. The father's committed to the work in their life. And what I see as a problem, in my opinion, it isn't a problem to the Lord. In fact, he's working in their heart and in their life in ways that I can't see and often in ways that I don't fully understand. The Lord is the one who begins the good work and he didn't ask me to complete the good work in somebody else. He's going to do it through his Holy Spirit. It's his job. He's able to soften out the rough edges. He's able to alter convictions. He's, he's able to change perspectives. Many a congregation has been torn apart by doubtful things. Scripture says we don't have the right to judge in this way the Lord's servant. We're to seek to understand, to understand their perspective, to sympathize with, to love them, to encourage them. God is working in that other person's life just like he's working in your life and in mine. Another point of contention within the early church had to do with not only the diet or the things that they ate, but the observance of certain religious days. Doubts about days. Verse five, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, he observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he doesn't observe it. He who eats, he eats to the Lord. 
for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. The problem with the church in Rome and many churches since is that some believers felt that they were more spiritual than their counterparts. And each thought the other one was carnal. When in reality, they were both trying to do that which they felt pleased the Lord. They were both convinced in their own minds that they were right. For example, the Jews regarded the Sabbath day as the day of rest. It was holy, set apart. It was a day of worship on the seventh day of the week. They also had other days and seasons that were sacred to them. And they felt very strongly that these days must be observed. On the other hand, you had the Gentiles who wanted to separate themselves from any idea of observing a particular day as religiously sacred because it reminded them of their former pagan practices. There's still groups today that are unalterably convinced and dogmatically suggest that the only day to worship God is Saturday. It's the Sabbath day. While others say Sunday. I say worship God every day. It's not so much about the day, it's about the worship of God. And by the way, here at Calvary, we worship Saturdays and Sundays, so we're good. So you shouldn't have a problem. But I want to point out something I find interesting in the studying of this passage is that Paul doesn't answer the issue directly. He simply says, let each of you be convinced in your own mind. Again, this isn't a scriptural issue that he's dealing with so much as a matter of opinion. If you want to worship on Saturday, go for it. If you want to worship on Sunday, great. I'm so glad you're here. But do it as unto the Lord. If you just want to eat meat, wonderful. Have a barbecue. If you just want to eat vegetables, fantastic. Toss a salad. It's not a big deal. We shouldn't divide over it. People can still be right with the Lord, even though they may have a liberty that I don't think God has given to me. And as long as it does not contradict scripture or lead them into a life of sin, it's between them and the Lord. As soon, listen, as soon as it goes against God's word, the line is drawn. God sets the boundaries for us. And that is an entirely different matter altogether. Two of the most famous preachers of the Victorian era were Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker. They were really good friends. In fact, they would preach in one another's pulpits. However, they had a disagreement and they ended up dividing between one another. Spurgeon accused Parker of being unspiritual because he attended the theater. Now that was interesting because Spurgeon who was against going to the theater, smoked cigars, to which many believers were opposed to. In fact, it is somewhat humorous, but Spurgeon argued that he did not smoke cigars to excess. But when someone asked him what he meant by excess, he responded, no more than two at one time, is what he said. <laughs> but this conflict brewed between the two of them, and it ruined their fellowship, and it tainted their ministries, and reports went out in the newspaper of their disputes with one another. Who was right? Perhaps neither, perhaps both. By the way, as a side note, 
Later on, Spurgeon stopped smoking cigars because the cigar company found out that he was smoking them and they put it in the newspaper, these are the cigars that Spurgeon smokes. And so he stopped smoking from that day forward. But sometimes it's best to disagree agreeably while maintaining unity. In non-essential things, there should be charity among us. Paul shares a couple of practical instructions that will help us make our way through differences. First of all, he says, and we mentioned it a moment ago, let everyone be convinced in their own mind. You need to know that what you're doing is what God wants you to do. You need to be persuaded. You don't need to persuade me. You don't need to justify it to me or to anyone else. You need to do what God tells you to do. And ultimately, you're going to answer to God, just like I will. Secondly, we need to remember that our life ultimately belongs to the Lord. It says here in verse 7 through 9, For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, in other words, because our life is not our own, therefore, whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died, rose, and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Our lives as believers are not our own. The Bible tells us we've been bought with a price. Therefore, we're to glorify God in our body and our spirit, which are his. We belong to him. He purchased us with his own blood. And when you understand that your life is not your own and that you belong to the Lord, you understand that you're accountable to the Lord. You're not going to be doing things that are questionable or potentially stumbling yourself or other people. You're going to avoid those things because you know your life is not the Lord or your life is the Lord's and you want to please the Lord with the life that he's given you. Paul reminds his readers also that one day every single individual is going to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account of their life. He tells us in verse 10, he asks the question, why do you judge your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It seems inconsistent. It's wrong for us to take the place of judge here on earth when who has the final say is the one that all of us are going to stand before, and that's Christ when he sits at his judgment seat, referred to as the Bema seat. It's written that every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul reminds the church then and the church today that there is a judgment seat that each believer is going to stand before but we're not the ones sitting on the judgment seat judging our brothers or our sisters. The judgment seat is reserved for Jesus Christ. And if that is the case, why are we judging each other now over non-scriptural issues? Why are we, why are we debating over that? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul mentions this same judgment seat of Christ when he said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive things done in his body according to that which he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Folks, every single person is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And this judgment seat of Christ, referred to as the Bema seat, is where we receive rewards 
for the life that we've lived. We give an account of our life for the decisions that we've made, for the direction that we've gone, for the words that we've spoken, for the stewardship of our time and our resources. It's all going to be accounted for and rewarded accordingly. And so because I know I'm going to stand before Jesus and you're going to stand before Jesus, Jesus is your judge and he's my judge as well. It's important to keep this in mind when dealing with others. Now, again, the question arises when you're in a passage like this or a study like this, because I think the same way. Some of you might be thinking, well, wait a second. What about unbiblical things? What about unscriptural things? What about sinful things? Again, let me say that that is a completely different subject. That is not what is being addressed in the context here. When something is unbiblical, when something is sinful, now we deal with it directly head on, just like the Bible says we're to do it in a way that pleases and honors the Lord. Now, lest the stronger, more mature believers become inflated with arrogance and find themselves saying to the weaker brother, see their weaker brother? Did you read chapter 14? Did you see what Paul said? Do you see what he wrote? Get off my back. Stop bothering me. I want to have a burger. Leave me alone. I don't really, you know, suddenly you, you feel so strong. Like, you need to grow up, weaker brother, weaker sister. Why don't you mature already? Lest that happen, the apostle wisely presents the balance of his teaching by explaining that with our God-given liberty and our freedom that we have in Christ comes a great amount of responsibility. Remember that Jesus said in Luke's gospel, when someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. This freedom that we have comes with a responsibility. We not only have the liberty and the freedom to participate in various practices, but we also have the liberty and freedom not to engage in various practices. And we need to be mindful when we are exercising our liberty that there is a godly sensitivity to those who could stumble, potentially. And that is why in verse 13, he uses the word again, therefore. He's just building line upon line. Therefore, let's not judge one another anymore. Can we resolve that? Can we just say amen to that? Let's not judge one another anymore over doubtful things, but rather let's resolve this. You want a resolution? Here's a resolution. Resolve this, not to put a stumbling block in front or cause to fall in our brother's way. Don't judge each other, but instead don't stumble one another either. In light of the fact that we're all going to stand before God, give an account for our life that we've lived for God, be rewarded by God. Let's stop judging one another, as Paul mentions. Let's stop looking for the speck in our brother's eye. Let's stop looking for the flaw in their faith or the chink in their spiritual armor. Because if you look close enough, you'll find it. Every single one of us have it. You look close enough, you'll discover it. And the interesting thing about that is those people that are constantly going around looking for the flaws in other people's faith, they fail to see it in themselves. What are you doing? I'm too busy. I can't look at my own faults right now. Why? I'm discovering everyone else's <laughs> and documenting them. I'll be sending you a full report, Pastor John, uh, in the morning. You know, there's a danger in that. 
When we judge another person's behavior and we fail to see that we're in need of alteration by the Spirit of God. Here's the alternative to judging one another. Let's determine to be sensitive to one another and not stumble one another if we can help it. As a Christian, we can be a stumbling block or a stepping stone for someone else. We can help someone grow or we can hinder their growth. If I know that a brother or sister struggles with a particular area in their life, I'm going to be very sensitive to that. I'm not gonna, I don't want to mention that. I don't want to bring that up because I know where that will lead. And so I, I want to be sensitive to that area. And may the Holy Spirit speak to you about those various areas. In your own, Be convinced in your own mind. Let the, the Spirit of God speak to you. But I, I want to be mindful of that. If somebody struggles with relationships, for example, they're single. I'm not going to get around them and tell them, let me, can I tell you how amazing my marriage is? It's so good. You, oh, you don't have, you know, I'm not going to, you know what I mean? I'm going to be sensitive to people in that situation. I want them to know that they're loved, that God has a plan for them. And people are sensitive, especially this time of year. I think it's important. If somebody's gone through the devastation of a divorce that they didn't want, I'm not going to, I mean, I'm going to be sensitive to that situation. If somebody struggles with alcohol, or has come out of that life. You shouldn't invite them to the bar for a cup of coffee. It's just a dangerous thing to put a stumbling block in front of somebody else. I want to be sensitive to that. And as a Christian, because of that, there are certain things that I will not do. Not because I don't have the liberty to do them, but I also have the liberty not to do them because I'm concerned about somebody else that I love. And I don't want them to stumble over me. So here's the alternative. Paul tells us here, we need to not put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in front of someone. But the question comes up when you're talking about that. And here's the question. How far am I to go in seeking to accommodate myself to the special objections of one who may be a weaker brother or sister? How far should I be willing to go? And that in itself can be a difficult question to answer. And because some people struggle with everything. It doesn't matter. Your shoes, your hair, your car, your clothes, your breakfast, your, everything is an issue. How far do I go to accommodate them because they stumble at everything? What do I do? This is the best answer that I can offer you. Are you ready? You might want to write this down. Do the best that you can <laughs> without violating principle or what God has shown you in scripture. But if a brother or sister is stumbled, you do the best that you can. Do I need to change everything that they point out that is non-essential? No, because God not only wants the stronger individual to grow, he also wants the weaker individual to grow as well. With God's grace and his love flowing through us and his wisdom given to us, we can do all things even though there may be those who are still not satisfied, listen, do your best not to stumble another person. Verse 14, Paul just says this, I know, this is what I know. I know and I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus. There's nothing unclean of itself. Again, he's talking in the context of this meat that's eaten, offered to idols, trouble, etc. He said, I understand this. But he also said, but to him who considers it to be unclean, it's unclean. 
So I know myself, it's not, it's, not, it's not a big deal. It's not unclean. But to that person, it's unclean, and therefore I'm going to be sensitive to that. Now keep in mind, Paul was the most professional legalist of all time before he came to know Jesus. And he realized that all these things that he was hung up on didn't hold any weight as it related to matters of salvation. Things like eating this, not eating that. You'll find that people are always shocked and appalled at how someone else could do something other than what they themselves have the liberty to do. Shocking. Historically speaking, entire denominations have broken off from one another from those who had the audacity, this is true, the audacity to wear buttons on their clothing. I know it's funny, but it's true. You have buttons. We are no longer in fellowship. This was just a big thing back in the day. Way back in the day. So if I'm a mature believer, I do my best not to stumble someone else. And the reason that I want to be sensitive to that first of all, is I don't want to ruin the work that God's doing in that person's life just because I want my freedom. I want, I want to walk in love. I'm, love, folks, love and walking in love is willing to sacrifice for the other person. It's willing to put your own agenda aside so, because you love them. And Paul says in verse 15, if your brother is grieved because of your food, then you're, you're no longer walking in love. Don't destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Again, although we have certain liberties in Christ, we're not simply to demand them and insist upon them in the presence of those who could be stumbled by them. I don't want to ruin the work God's doing because to do so would not be walking in love. I want to be sensitive to my brother or sister. I'm not going to exercise a privilege without the realization of my responsibility of this freedom that I've been given. Another reason why is I want to maintain my witness. In verse 16, let not then your good be evil spoken of. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. The last thing that Paul wanted for this congregation was for them to be divided and the world to see it. I mean, the world is already divided. You just have to look at the news for two minutes and you will discover how divided we are. All you have to do is see the screen flash with the different percentages and you realize we are divided. They're divided out there. It can't be that way here. Jesus prayed, Father, let them be one. Like we're one. He prayed for unity among his disciples. If they weren't walking in love toward one another, there would be potential for division. Folks, let's ask ourselves, when the outside world looks in at the church, what do we want them to see? List makers running about, enforcing rules, while others defiantly ignore them, divided, Invite, no, that, that, there's enough of that out there. We want them to see a diverse group of people from all different backgrounds, all different walks of life who have this common pursuit of loving Jesus 
loving his word and loving one another. When people from the outside that is divided come into a unified environment like this, it makes an impact in their life. People come from broken families, broken marriages, broken, and everything's broken. <laughs> and when they come in and they see people being put back together, being made whole, being mended, it has a tremendous impact in their life and even in their coming to Christ. I don't know about you. I don't know everybody's testimony here, but I've talked to many of you and I know many of you that one of the things when you first got saved that God used in your life was when you came into a body of believers and you sensed the love of Christ there. It's just that like, people genuinely love other people. Like, is this fake? Is this, are people really like that? Did they say love you? Is that just like a trivial thing to say? Is that just being tried? Do they really feel that way about one? Do they? Re it's real. It's authentic. And it makes a difference. It is possible to abuse our liberty in Christ and create conflicts within the church that when the world looks on and observes, the good that we want to do is being tainted by the division that they see. And suddenly the work is being spoken of as evil. The kingdom of God is not an outward form of formalities or an outward show of religious practices. It is not to be reduced to mere externals. It's about the fruit of the spirit of joy and peace, as Paul says here, and the work of the Holy Spirit. What then is the remedy? How do we, as believers, practically avoid potential division over doubtful things? And we're almost through. Paul says in verse 19 and 20, therefore, let us pursue the things. Let's run after the things that make for peace and, and the things by which one may edify one another. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. You notice Paul is repeating himself. A good teacher repeats himself. He's, just, he's saying the same thing a different way. He says, you want to know what you should do? You should pursue the things that are going to be peaceful. Blessed are the peacemakers, the Bible says. If you're walking around here, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And you're just debating about everything. Stop that. Work toward peace. Give peace a chance, would you? The peace of Christ, that is. And those things are going to build up the body of Christ, not tear it down. Edify one another, build one another, encourage one another, pray for one another. The great resolution for Calvary Chapel in 2020. Pursue the things that make for peace and edify one another. What an amazing place this would be. I think it already is an amazing place, but even more so. In verse 21, it is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or made weak. Paul put it a different way in writing to the Corinthians. He said something similar. First Corinthians chapter 10, he said this, and mark this. He said, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Very interesting passage. Ties in perfectly 
All things are profitable, meaning I have the freedom to do these things. I have the freedom, but, but it isn't necessarily going to edify. And so therefore, even though I have the freedom to do it, I'm going to set it aside because I'm concerned about my neighbor, the one that I love. I want to walk in love. Nothing is clean or unclean by itself. He said the essence of Christianity isn't found in mere external matters. When liberty hinders the work of God, it's to be yielded. And then finally, he says in these last few verses, he asks the question, do you have faith? Well, have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who doesn't condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he doesn't eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Paul's saying, listen, you have faith, that's wonderful. Are you strong in your walk? That's great. Be mature. Be, be mindful of other people. If you don't want to eat it, don't eat it. If you feel condemned when you do, no pressure. Don't eat it. Stay away from it. We have to remember that there are some who are stronger in their faith than others, but there is always someone stronger than we are in their faith as well. And while we are compassionately limiting our freedom for the sake of someone else's weakness, listen, another Christian is doing the same thing for us. Unless you think you're the most mature person in the room, which is another problem and a sign of spiritual weakness. All of us are growing and maturing. Paul said concerning himself, I haven't arrived. God's not finished with me yet. The psalmist said, I'm not going to be content until I awaken his likeness. There is a work that is going to continue to go on in my life until the day I am with the Lord. Here's three simple reminders. First of all, be considerate of others. Be blessed in your liberty, but also be sensitive to others who could stumble potentially. Secondly, be convinced. You need to know what you believe and why you believe it. Take things before the Lord. Ask him what he approves of in his word. And not just the cultural approval, but the biblical approval of what you're doing. Because there's many things that are culturally acceptable that are biblically not acceptable. Take it to the Lord. See what his word says. And also be consistent. You know, there were things at one time in my life that I had the liberty to do, but I don't have the liberty any longer. And there are other things that I would defend that were doubtful that I no longer need to defend and right every wrong that I think I see. I'm still growing. <laughs> and so are you. A closing passage, mark this down. And I think this passage right here sums up everything that Paul says in Romans 14. It really sums up all that we've just read. You say, well, why don't you read that to start with? Because this is the end. And here it is. Galatians 5, verse 13. It says, for you, brethren, you've been called to liberty. And I say, yes, praise God. When the sun sets free, is free indeed. Stand fast in your liberty, Paul would say to the Galatians. You've been, you've been called to liberty. But here's the other side of it. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. That is so wonderfully balanced. I love that. Hey, you have liberty in Christ. Praise him for it. But listen, 
Don't use that liberty as an opportunity to get in the flesh about it, demand it, but instead, through love, serve one another, serve one another, love one another, love one another. This is the greatest commandment, love one another. And Jesus said to his disciples, love one another as I have loved you. Folks, let's be patient with each other in 2020. Let's grow together, not, not apart, but closer in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? <laughs> Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this morning you have given us instruction that is so practical and so relevant for not only our lives within the church, but, but also within the home. Or to be patient with one another, to be sensitive to one another. Lord, thank you for your patience with us. Lord, I pray for this congregation. Lord, I pray that we would be united, biblically solid. But Lord, also we'd be compassionate mindful of one another, concerned, genuinely concerned, that when the world looks on, they would see a culture that demonstrates the love of Christ toward one another and toward the world. Lord, take us into this next year. Guide us, direct us, lead us, Lord. Open up new doors of opportunity and Lord, we just want to do what you've called us to do. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us? For me, every time I go into a new year, probably like most of you, I think about the things that I didn't do last year that I need to do this year. I didn't do them the year before either. But this is the year. You know how it is. And, you know, certain goals that you set for yourself and things that you would like to accomplish and just get to that you haven't been able to. But spiritually speaking, for me, I, I think that my resolution and my goal and my purpose have been fairly consistent. I'm a simple man. So I like to sum things up. And for me, when I think of going into a new year, I always think of the two words that Jesus says to his disciples, follow me. Just follow me. And I know that if I'm following the Lord and I'm living closely to the shepherd, I'm not going to miss his will for my life. Just, just follow me. Because I don't, I don't know what the rest of this day holds. But I, it's my desire to follow Jesus and if I just follow him, I just love him and stay in his word. And I know he's been so faithful my whole life to lead me and yours as well, that he'll continue to lead me. So whatever resolutions you make, lose this, gain that, throw that out, purchase, whatever your thing is, 
<laughs> Make sure that you keep Jesus at the center. May the Lord give you a Jesus-filled new year. Amen. God bless you.